welcome to Reverb, everyone. I'm Calvin Pollock. Right now, we are dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, and it's created a lot of upheaval in all of our lives. Um, and, you know, one of the things that it has done is made us increasingly reliant on technology and mediation and digital software um, to really, like, reclaim any sense of our social, cultural, political lives. And you know, I was thinking about this recently, and I was thinking, who should I talk to about this? Um, who can we have on the show who would be a great person to talk about these kinds of topics with mediation and its role in, in times of crisis? And then what should come across my Twitter feed, but an article by James J. Brown Jr., Epic Crisis for an Epic Crisis, which is definitely the best article title that I've seen for a rhetoric article this year. So joining me today to talk about digital rhetoric and times of crisis is James J. Brown Jr., um, Associate Professor of English and Director of the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University. James teaches courses on digital studies and literature and video games at Rutgers. He's the author of the great 2015 book, Ethical Programs, Hospitality, and the Rhetorics of Software, and he's currently working on a new book about how software design contributes to the problem of online harassment. So, Jim, welcome to Reverb. Thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. The, the article began with the title. I, I, I found a title and then had to write an article for it. That's a great way to approach scholarship, I, I find. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess just to open things up in a very general, and I hope generative way. I wondered if you have any thoughts on some of the media and tech and digital tools that you've been relying on most at this time, and what have your thoughts been on those tools? As someone who studies software, I tend to think that most software is bad. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel good, and it doesn't... Um, always, um, I doesn't always do what I want it to do. And, um, so I've been thinking about this in terms of like, you know, what's helping me right now and what's, what's making my life easier and what's making my life harder. And, you know, a lot of the software I'm using right now is, is truly not making my life easier. It's, so, it's software that we're being forced to use, uh, not, not that we've chosen to use, but you know, a couple of things I've been thinking about. One is um, Twitter is an interesting piece of software that is sort of sort of simultaneously making me happy and sad. Um, Twitter is always this great place where people are really funny and entertaining and sharing um, interesting things, but it's also like this flood of uh, you know bad news. So that that's one that kind of <laughs> sits in the middle of like happiness and sadness for me, um, and. And, and just about every other sort of productivity tool at this point when it comes to like either teaching. So I, I'm using Canvas for remote teaching and um, an email. All of that appears to be kind of nothing but noise at this point. And I think part of that is, um, you know, I'm teaching in this class right now called the Internet of Garbage uh, that sort of a t touches on all kinds of garbage, harassment, spam, um, e-waste. And one of the things we've been talking about in that class a lot is sustainability and taking a more sustainable approach to our digital lives. And I don't just mean like not buying the next iPhone so because that will end up in a landfill. But you know, thinking about sustainability as something where maybe you, you choose not to do something because even though it would be 
easier for you to do it. It's bad for the ecosystem. Um, and I don't know that that many people think about email in those terms, but I think in this situation, people should be thinking about email in those terms. I mean, your, your university is probably like mine. They just keep sending more email, like, um, please stop. <laughs> no, you know, like uh, nobody's stopping to think like that we, we don't need another email. Yeah. And I, and I've thought about that a little bit in terms of requiring synchronous zoom teaching, not to get controversial here, but I, I don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I'm not requiring any, any of it. Um, uh, I'm doing very little synchronous stuff. Uh, not only because pedagogically it's just proven to be relatively bad, um, synchronous teaching online. I mean, all the research suggests that if you're going to teach online, like it should basically be asynchronous and, and you have to approach everything differently. You have to approach how you, how you assign tasks. You know, you, you and I've read the same stuff, but, um, yeah, I, I, the amount of time and energy it would take to do that and the value anyone would, would get from it. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I think it's a, I think it's a bad idea. So I, I've, you know, once a week I have an hour where students can come yeah. and we could talk about the reading. It's a seminar, it's a grad seminar I'm teaching, but there's no way I'm going to sit in front of a screen for two and a half hours or make anyone else do that. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. I guess in the realm of happier or tools and media that have been making me happier during this time, I, I don't know about you, but I've been feeling an urge to go back to very old media. I've been listening to a ton of records and watching Turner Classic movies, and I find that really soothing. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. It does. Uh, I listen to a lot of records. We have um, the sad thing about what's going on is we can't go to our record store, which is like, you know, five, five blocks from our house and a good friend of ours runs it. And so that's been sort of tough because our kind of Friday ritual at the house is like to, as a family to kind of walk down to the record store and pick out some stuff. Um, but we've been listening to tons of records. I've been reading a lot of fiction, um, magically been able to like, I don't know how I'm able to focus on it, to be honest with you. I would assume I would be too distracted to do it, but, um, reading a ton of, a ton of novels. And, um, the other thing I've just started doing the last week. So, uh, a, you know, and we're both baseball fans, uh, a, um, a fantasy game, fantasy baseball game that I've been playing for about 25 years. I mean, this game's been around since like the days of like Appa? Is it Appa service. or, um, what, what's the other it's one? Ba- it's called, um, it's called baseball manager and it oh, is baseball so manager. obscure oh. and like weird and nobody knows about it and it charges an obscene amount of money and it's like, I, explaining it would take way too long but you know the the interface is like terrible because it's run by these like i think it's run by like three guys in a in a web server like I, sure. it's just not even a company but um this what they started to do right now they, they they're running a new game where they're rerunning the 2019 season but they took all the astros out <laughs> uh, they, they called it the strows list 2019 because you know they, they decided to just take all the cheaters out so yeah they that's been making me up. very happy yeah i love yeah. it um so i got to do a draft for that league recently and kind of go back and just lose myself in baseball statistics yeah well for, for a couple hours i was gonna mention that right after this started i was like i need to find a video game to just engross myself in and i got super mega baseball 2 which is this obscure indie baseball game it's entirely like fake teams like it, it's not licensed by mlb so it's all these absurd teams like the platypi and like 
the blowfish uh teams like that but it's i don't know this game but i am 100 percent on board well, it, what's amazing about it is it's it's not licensed but it's incredibly realistic and it has the best gameplay of any baseball game i've ever played it's kind of like watching a game but you can control it like it's it's that realistic feeling wow um and i get really into the stats like i'm playing through an entire season and I get really into like tracking the stats. And the one thing that's kind of frustrating is when they they choose like players of the game at the end of every game, and they use like the very old-fashioned narrative-y stats like hits, RBI. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, but I drew four walks. <laughs> like this guy drew four walks. <laughs> he should be player of this, the game. <laughs> this guy's WAR is way higher. Yeah, yeah, no, know, WAR like... <laughs> should definitely be determining players of the game. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend that if you're looking for like a right. baseball yes. game to play, I'll be all over that. Yeah. Check that out. Um, so to broaden it out and, and to touch on some of your work that I'm really interested in, you have this quote at the beginning of your 2015 book, ethical programs that I think is extremely striking to think about in this moment where you say networked life forces us to interact with others even when we haven't extended an invitation and even when we haven't been invited. Life in a network society means never getting to be alone and never getting to be offline. It means never really getting to decide in any thoroughgoing way who or what enters your home. This situation is one defined by hospitality, but not a hospitality that involves a clearly defined host or guest. And so you you talk about this concept of hospitality in terms of software that it's a double-edged sword that, sword that software connects us to an innumerable number of other people, users, networks, and systems. But on the other hand, that to function well, it depends on limits to this connectivity. Things like firewalls, filters, blocking people who you don't like on social media and stuff like that. And and I feel like these two meanings of hospitality are have been very dramatized by the current pandemic where... We depend on the laws of hospitality, as you call them, uh, to literally to survive right now, right? But the law of hospitality, the broader sense that like we are connected to everyone else, both online and offline, is um, incredibly pervasive and um, threatening right now. Yeah, it is, um, especially because the you know in the book the. For one, like this notion of hospitality, I'm, I'm pulling from Derrida and, and his sort of notion of the law as uh, just just as you described it, the law versus the laws, right? The law is the sort of unavoidable relationality uh, that we face every day that we can't avoid. And then the laws are what we do in response to that. And those laws are always going to be um, uh, exclusionary. There's just no way around that. And so the current situation is interesting because... You know, in the book, I'm focused on how software participates in this set of problems. But now we're in a situation where um, we can see the kind of, you know, I hint at this in, in the book a little bit, in, but 2015 feels like, you know, 7,000 years ago. Um, I, I hint at like, there's no offline, um, but the kind of relationship between digital technology and the quote unquote real world or offline life or whatever the heck that means today is even, you know, you see more, it's even more striking how interwoven these things are. And, and the, the pandemic of course raises all kinds of questions about 
um, hospitality and, and relationality because the whole problem is that relation spreads the virus, you know, interaction spreads the virus. So it's at least certain kinds of interactions. So that, as you've already talked about, we have had to find mediated ways, um, uh, digitally mediated ways to, to interact that don't spread the virus. And that's, it's been interesting to watch people do that and innovate in, in sort of strange ways. Um, but, but the sort of connection between things like how information moves and how the virus moves, these are things people have, of course, studied for a long time. It's why we have the term viral as we, uh, you know, in, in digital culture. But, um, this problem of hospitality and this predicament of hospitality, which is something I had to kind of go out of my way to argue uh, in the book so that people didn't hear me saying hospitality as like, as a good thing, as something one extends to another. Um, it's certainly that, that is part of the discussion, but it's sort of only ever happens in response to the, the problem of hospitality. Um, it's sort of right in our, it's been right in our face for, for many years, um, especially, I mean, since the, the election of 2016, any discussions of, of immigration are caught up in this problem of hospitality, but, you know, the increasing digital surveillance we're experiencing, there's just, um, there's a lot of ways that this, this question or this problematic is sort of for, forcing itself on us. But right now, I mean, it has been just uh, striking how much we're sort of uh, up against it. I think you're right to point to these other issues that dramatize the problematic of hospitality really starkly. Things like immigration, uh, mass surveillance, climate change, I would put in there as well. Just these these conversations where seemingly our interconnectedness, the interconnectedness is both the source of the problem and potentially the source of the solution. But I think that in in this situation, um, people are really struggling with finding where that line is. I'm like a naturally sort of neurotic, misanthropic person. Uh, and like, <laughs> and, and so this situation f makes me feel weirdly vindicated where I'm like, oh, I've been doing the right, I've been training for this for a long time. Hmm? Like, not see, I told you everyone was terrible. <laughs> if you all would have just listened to me, my partner and I sit on our balcony and, and see like groups of young people, like walking down the street together and, and we're like so close to like screaming, like, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. That's been a real, you know, I think that's something that a, a lot of people have experienced and I, you know, we've experienced it here. Our house, our backyard is right up against the backyards of like two other um, people, their, their houses face the other way. But so our backyards butt up against each other and they have teenagers. And there have been a couple of times where I can tell that those like, obviously with the sort of uh, blessing of the parents, they have friends over and my, um, and not only do they have friends over, by the way, they have like, they're all like jumping on a trampoline together. I'm just oh, like, no. you've got to be kidding me. But my eight-year-old who hasn't had social interaction with any of his friends and coming up on like 30 days now, he turns to me and like, what's going on? Like, why are they doing that? And then after having this realization that like, this shouldn't be happening, he's burst into tears <laughs> because that's what he wants. You know, that's yeah. all he wants. Like is, is is to see his friends and to not have things get canceled and like to see, to see other people enjoying social, like actual physical social interaction was just like too much for him. Like he, he just lost it. And so, so it was, it was sort of striking to see his response because his response of like was both 
being upset, but also just really angry, but angry in a different way than I was. Like I'm sitting here like, what are you people thinking? Yeah. You know, and he's just, he, he's experiencing something similar, but it, it's sort of manifesting very differently. And, um, it's been interesting. Like, I mean, to, to sort of turn this back to that hospitality question. I mean, we, we all mount our own like ethical programs in the face of this set of problems and we have to figure out ways to make those things line up. Right. We have to figure out collective ways to act. And in some ways it's been kind of interesting to watch how successful that collective action has been in some ways at least. Yeah. And then of course there's friction and, and sort of weird collisions in other ways, you know, people who are insisting that like, because they live in rural areas that they're completely insulated from this, this problem. And so they don't have to deal with things the same way. And that's of course just not true. It's, you know, that it, it will arrive, it will arrive everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. and that's the hospitality problem. Like it's sort of the call is coming from inside the house. You know, there's, it's, it's already here. Um, and that's why hospitality is a useful frame for thinking about it because, you know, you didn't, you didn't open the door and let it in, but it's, it's here nonetheless. Yeah. I, I just have trouble grappling with, with the, the way that information travels in a crisis like this. I think that's the, the most troubling aspect of it because there's, I mean, so we have someone in the white house who is not a reliable narrator, narrator of any sort of like scientific, <laughs> uh, discussion. Right. And, and, right. On previous shows, we talked about the Puerto Rico crisis and how Trump was just making up new numbers of people who had died or who had been displaced um, on a daily basis, directly contradicting facts. And I think we're seeing that happening in this crisis as well. And what it does is that it makes it really hard to tell who is getting what streams of information, and especially as regards like staying home and and the best practices that will prevent the spread of this thing you know we know we've heard this a million times in recent years that these sorts of like information silos filter bubbles whatever you want to call them are sort of creating new realities or different re clashing realities for different sets of people depending on political persuasion and you know this is a situation where like it's a it's life or death uh, if you choose a different reality, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, not, this isn't the first time that's happened, but this is the most, I think, stark version of that, of that narrative. And so who's deciding, so you've got this person standing at a microphone insisting he's getting great ratings, which is why he's in front of the microphone and he's got the bully pulpit and he's able to control certain narratives and, that means that certain people are going to make certain decisions based on, you know, what arrives at their sort of digital doorstep, you know, what kind of information they're getting, whether it's good or bad. And yeah, I mean, I think everybody's waiting for that to, for everything to kind of break that, that there will come a time when the sort of uh, reality of the world and the situation will somehow stop him from doing that or stop that from working. And of course it's not happening. Not that I can tell. I don't, I think the dream is that this will somehow, that everything will sort of crumble for the, for, for him because, um, you can't argue with the virus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not happening yet. It's sort of shocking. I think that it's a reminder for me of why I care so much about rhetoric and take it seriously because 
morally, in a kind of normative ethical sense, our impulse is to feel that people we see on the street uh, hanging out in large crowds, like your neighbors, Trump at the bully pulpit, we want to just say, like, snap out of it, like, you should know what the correct practices are. But the nature of rhetoric is that, like, just knowing or just um, viewing something morally in an abstract, normative sense is one thing, but getting it to actually travel and getting it to um, have effects in the world is the real sort of work we have to do. And in this conversation, I wonder how much you view ethos as related to this, because I know that ethical is a big word that you draw on a lot in ethical programs, of course, but I wonder how much ethos in terms of the identity of the speaker in a discourse, how much that helps you to understand these kinds of questions, because I saw it coming up a lot in that book, and I wonder if you could just talk about how you understand that concept of ethos and how it's relevant to digital rhetoric more broadly, but also in the sense of like getting your version of reality to stick. Because a lot of people want someone like Trump or people who are not taking this seriously to just snap out of it, but that's not going to happen on its own. It's something that happens rhetorically and, you know, and through practice. And so I wonder how much ethos is part of that. Yeah, I, I think it's, it is, it's a huge part of it. It's a, and it's like a key, it is a key term in that book, especially because the, the sort of, this sort of traditional notion of ethos as char- character of the speaker, whether that's char- the character of the speaker that is sort of cultivated through discourse, like you sort of cultivating one's expertise through the things that you can perform or what gets like, a, you know, that's the sort of artistic version of ethos. And the inartistic version of ethos is the stuff that you don't control that's attached to your identity, who you are over and beyond any choice you make. So those are really interesting, of course, ways to think about someone like Trump thinking or just thinking about kind of how rhetoric circulates online. And one of the other one of the chapters in the book, I talk about how ethos is, becomes our sort of primary rhetorical resource in digital spaces, because if you're not sort of in the same room with someone or sort of have or if you don't have a history of discourse with someone, then how uh, ethos becomes their the main way you have of understanding whether you should should listen to them. And, but, but it extends sort of beyond that too, because, you know, as I, as I, I mean, draw on some work in the book that, that understands ethos as a, as a connection to place as well. And, um, the, the Michael Hyde uh, edited collection where, where they sort of are thinking about ethos as dwelling place. So how does one's ethos as a rhetor sort of transform place and space and make a new, help make a new situation or help twist a situation? And I think this is actually exactly what you're talking about is people think that people are going to snap out of it. Then, and the sort of faith in rhetoric is that we can make the right argument and the logical switches will fall into place and someone will start acting the way they're supposed to act. But of course, people who study rhetoric know that it almost never works that way. So, so the question is more, is more difficult than that. It is, how do you transform a situation? How do you, and what, and it's not just how do you transform a situation, but how does a trans, how does a situation get transformed? So it's not about a single sort of, uh, magical rhetor who can fix this problem, but what other sorts of forces have to fall into place to change people's minds, to change their calculus. And, 
Um, when it comes to studying things like digital spaces and software, I think this is especially interesting because part of that situation is the platform, is the code, is the um, the function and the interface. And, and so when we talk about the ethos of a place or the ethos of a, you know, of a community, when we're talking about online places and communities, the sort of the, the functions of the platforms that people are using are very much a part of that. So the, the dwelling place in which rhetoric is happening is very much um, shaped and constrained by software. And that's one of the things I was really interested in thinking about in that book is how does, um, how does, the, how does ethos sort of circulate back and forth and amongst things like you know, text, author, platform, technology, network, um, we know it's not, we know ethos is not situated in, in a single speaking or writing or typing subject, but, um, I think one of the things I was hoping to get rhetoric, rhetoricians to think about is how software is threaded through all of that too. And so accounting for computation at a kind of, at the level of code and function becomes really important to understanding the ethos uh, of a conversation, the way a conversation is moving or not moving or, or gets blocked, yeah, I really like uh, talking about code as a way to understand this expanded version of ethos because I think this idea that that uh, you know ethos is not necessarily solely tied to a speaker's identity that they cultivate intentionally or even a speaker's uh, reputation in a community, but is also a kind of dwelling place created by rhetoric is a is a kind of world-making power of rhetoric. And so if we think about code in that way, we can always come back to Twitter as a great example of this, how certain functions are coded into Twitter that render it a certain kind of dwelling place. And also how Twitter users turn their profiles or their timelines into a certain kind of dwelling place. For instance, I know people I won't say that I'm one of them, but I know people who have their shiny, nice, professional Twitter, and then they have an alt Twitter. They have like a locked down um, uh, alternative Twitter. And I think that kind of dramatizes the difference in, in ethos as the dwelling place very well, because people on their alt Twitters will have a much sillier, more unhinged, wacky dwelling place for their followers to come to, whereas... Uh, their professional account is going to be much more right down the middle. It's going to be CV building and professional networking. And then, of course, there are the broader, as you point out, the platform elements that make Twitter a particular kind of dwelling place. Yeah, for sure. So, so the, you know, the, the sort of fake fake Instagram is a sort of similar, you know, the Finsta sort of similar similar situation where people are and and that's people knowing that i i got to present identity in certain ways in certain places um and and, you know i just read a recent uh, i taught a book in the class that i'm i'm teaching right now um called um distributed blackness by andre brock which i highly recommend that talks about this this issue of like identity across different spaces because you know people have long complained that digital spaces um force us to force us into what's called context collapse, meaning like you can't be person A over here and then be person B over here because online everybody can see everything. And Brock, um, Brock's great sort of intervention into that problem is like, 
well, welcome. Like we've been, uh, African-Americans have been experiencing that problem basically forever um, under the surveillance of, of uh, uh, white supremacy. So we've never had the, the sort of magical ability to just, you know, be, be one thing over here and another thing over here. That's sort of a, an aside that just came up as you were sort of thinking about those different identities in, in, on Twitter. But the other thing to think about then is like, how one so you've got this sort of way to cultivate the ethos of your Twitter feed, um, and then you've got the way to cultivate the ethos of your um, your the feed that you read, not the feed that you create. So how do you cultivate what you want to see, what you don't want to see? Everything from I mean, of course, the most obvious way is who do you follow and who don't you follow. But even like muting certain words and thinking about when to kind of step away or when someone needs to be muted. <laughs> you know, we all have folks, I think, that we follow, that we have to follow for professional or personal reasons, um, but we don't want to hear from. <laughs> so I use the mute. I use the mute function um, often uh, when I feel like this is just not good for me. So I think I'll just go ahead and sort of make this, make my life a little easier. You know, for a long time, I thought, I fought against that impulse and thought that that was the sort of uh, like a, a coward's way out. way out. Yeah, totally. I, I did. I thought like I should be, I should confront my, like I should force myself to be confronted by this, whatever it is, whether it's an annoyance or worse. And I finally came around to the, to the idea that like that was a completely ridiculous thing, <laughs> the thing to put myself through. I mean, it's one thing to say like, I need to know what people are arguing, even if I don't agree with them. Of course I think that. But there are times when you have to draw the line. There, there's a sort of clear sense of an ethical program that I have to decide. I have to draw a line and make a decision. What, what is this? What is this for? Why am I doing right. this? What, you know, why am I putting myself through this? But I do think everything from, um, you know, and this comes up in the Epicrisis uh, article. Like this is about, you know, how fu- the functions of Twitter, what's baked into the platform. And what's not shapes everything about how we interact with one another. And um, oftentimes, as I've been working through this new project, you know, I learn how much these platforms and their functions enable bad behavior, make bad behavior really easy. Um, Right. So so and that's all tied up with the ethos of a place. Sometimes you decide that like Twitter itself is just not the best dwelling place for you and you log off. And like, I think that is often, that is often the best decision. I think it's really interesting to reflect on times when we may have turned to it as a dwelling place without really reflecting on whether it's the best dwelling place. I find that when I'm procrastinating, I often spend a lot of time on Twitter. I think that's true for a lot of people. I don't know if part of it as well is that the alternatives like Microsoft Word, for instance, like that's not a great <laughs> dwelling place either. <laughs> Definitely not. It's the worst dwelling place. My way of dealing with that sometimes is to delete the app from my phone. So that means I got to go over to my computer and open up a browser window, which is way harder than just, you know, flipping over my phone. And and I'll find myself when I do that, opening my phone and looking for something to do and realizing like, oh, there's nothing to do here. Like go read a book. And that sometimes that really works really well. And sort of forces me out of that habit, um, which is a very difficult habit to break because these devices are designed for constant interaction and constant flow of just the scroll. I, you know, I read a piece not too long ago about the guy who 
was like part of the developer team that that invented you know the the infinite scroll uh in in all these social media apps and he was like it was it was definitely a moment where where an inventor was like oh like what have i done this is yeah. this is a terrible like idea. a manhattan like, project moment yeah like, exactly it's definitely that moment of like oh my god what have i done because the you know the sort of ability to scroll forever or when you get to the top to like pull down and say well there's got to be more you know i was talking to students about this recently there used to be a time when twitter kind of ended when you could you would get to the it, end it was late at night yeah like it was late at night people are asleep if you if you follow most people most people in your time zone um unless you and a couple of your friends are up super late and interacting on twitter you could actually get to the end of everything everyone you followed but that was when the feed was the people you followed and not you know your friends friends or what's getting a lot of likes or what's getting a lot of retweets so it's it's a strange thing to remember that there was a way to you could finish twitter for the day like you could be done with it now that we're talking about twitter i would love to basically just dive into this new piece epic crisis for an epic crisis from a modern you do get into the fact that the quote tweet so the quote tweet which we should just say for anyone who's who isn't familiar quote tweeting is when you tweet and you embed someone else's tweet within your tweet often people make some sort of commentary or respond to it it's that embedding of a a previous tweet within your current tweet which the platform has over time made much more accessible something that's very much encouraged by twitter's platform you trace this back to platform maintenance from the early 1900s the first telephone operators into the mid-20th century when major corporate phone networks were encouraging subscribers to document instances of basically bad behavior on phone networks. So you seem to be identifying like a particular type of commentary and quotation. Yeah. So this all started because I was really interested in the quote tweet and how it was being used by people to kind of expose harassers and trolls. And um, one of the people I talk about in the article is Tressie McMillan-Cottom, who uses this this function a lot to kind of expose the people that um, are constantly barraging her with like whether everything from like annoyance to outright hate and racism. And so I would, I saw her doing it and I would see Roxanne Gay doing it and some other people as well. And so I was like, well, you know, what's going on here? Tracy McGillan Cottom, I think, is like particularly, I don't even know what the word she's is. Cur- she's she's perfected it. She's like, perfected she's it. She's perfected it. Like yeah. no she's one else can it. do it as well as Tressie. No. And my proudest moment, of course, is like the day the article came out and I tweeted about it and I tagged her in it and said, like, you know, come read about how, you know, Tressie's quote tweets are like are, are, are similar to what was happening with you know telephone operators. She quote tweeted me <laughs> and uh, and and wrote about it and talked. But about she didn't own. quote tweet you and say, mom, question mark. No, not at all. No, no. She she quote tweeted me and said, you know, this is. I have a very specific strategy here, and here's how I think about the quote tweet. So it was really sort of interesting to hear her reflect on that. And, right. um, and you know, you're always worried when you write about someone that they're going to be like, like, what the hell are you talking about? This has nothing to do with, you know, what's, what I'm doing. Um, not that it would necessarily, like, delegitimize the study, but it, it was really nice to have her respond in that way. And totally. um, it was it was it was really cool. So so yeah, I, I saw this happening, 
And I thought, I thought like, there's something happening here. And I'm just, I want to understand kind of why people are doing this. Cause you don't have to do that. You can, re- you can reply, you, you know, you can reply to someone, you don't have to quote tweet them. You can ignore them. There's lots of ways to deal with this. And I don't remember, you know, the order of events here, but at some point as I'm trying to sort of puzzle through what this is, I, I oftentimes I will like go back to Richard Lanham. Lanham has this like catalog of tropes and figures basically, but I'll often go there and kind of just flip through to see if there's a way to describe what it is I'm seeing. I don't have those things top of mind. I always have to look up the figure. I always have right. to, I mean, I still don't know the difference between metaphor and metonymy. I'm a terrible rhetorician. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I go back to Lanham a lot and it turns out that like quoting someone and and commenting on it is a rhetorical figure. And I, I had never, never heard of this rhetorical figure, but it's called epicresis. And I, you know, and then I started playing with the idea that like epi is really an interesting prefix because, you yeah. know, we could think of it as like a covering, like an epidermis. You could think of it, you know, there's lots of ways to kind of be, think about the methodology of that, of course. So parallel to this, I wanted to do research on the telephone and how um, harassment happened in telephone networks. And I thought what I would be talking about is uh, telephone subscribers, people who got like harassing phone calls. Right. And the the operator part came out of nowhere I didn't expect to because um, like most people, I forget that there were people connecting those calls um, because we s- were sort of so far removed from that. But then sort of finding all this stuff about how operators had to kind of absorb and deal with toxic behavior. Mm-hmm. And so as, I, as the study sort of unfolded, what I started to see was... Um, was practices across media ecologies that were that were very similar, and they involved at you know the, the the these practices by largely often marginalized people who were tasked with kind of making the system run uh, so that other people could use it. So you could go to the parlor rhetorics of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, where women were asked to like um, host and get out of the way and let other people talk at these like you know, informal, like, you know, they, they weren't so much speeches, but maybe just sort of, um, conversations. And, right. uh, but, but women were asked to be the medium. They were asked to sort of cultivate the conversation, but not be part of the conversation. And of course that sounds a lot like having to connect the lines when you're a telephone operator, having to sort of know what, mm-hmm. what plug goes where is one piece of it, but also just knowing how to deal with subscribers who are, angry or frustrated or, you know, aren't getting what they want. And, and, and that sort of brought me back to those quote tweets where I was seeing uh, a lot of people, a large number of black women, but also others too, being asked to sort of deal with toxic behavior online. And this became like, this was an interesting strategy that I thought was, was, was not one I would have like thought of myself and was not one that I would have sort of immediately considered it as a way to deal with this. But epicresis as a term is really interesting and as a strategy is interesting because it's, it's, as I say in the article, it's a nice metaphor for mediation because you're allowing the, 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 the message through, right? You're, you're quoting someone, the message is getting through, but you're commenting on it and you're, you're sort of contextualizing it yourself. So, so it becomes like, you know, the, the line between medium and message is really blurry at that point. Who, who's, you know, what's, what's inside and what's outside, what's message, what's medium, all of that gets sort of muddled when someone's getting quoted and sort of summarized by someone else. And so as I tracked across these different historical moments, I was, these, this was the kind of 
if I didn't see, you know, it's not that in every moment I see people quoting someone and summarizing it and commenting on it. It's that right. what I see is a general set of strategies that I eventually end up calling epicritical of management, of manage, managing the network, kind of making it work for other people. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's really interesting. And I think there's a kind of strain of scholarship, and, and you can probably say more about the trajectory of the scholarship, but it's looking into the ethics of online communication and how the quote tweet has been viewed by a lot of scholars as uniformly negative as a rhetorical practice, because what happens is that people are assuming Twitter is a space of deliberation where we come together and we are communicating towards a goal of, you know, in, in the classical sense, deliberative rhetoric that is focused on the future, on where we want to go, uh, on policies that we want to implement. And so in order to get there, we have to come to sort of a, a consensus or an agreement. And you can think about, you know, the history of critical ra- rational deliberation and, and, and this whole model that what we're really oriented towards is agreement and consensus so that we can act together. But you, I think, productively push back on that and say that, you know, epideictic rhetoric is uh, just as important in spaces like this, which is uh, rhetoric oriented towards figuring out values, you know, what we view as good and bad rhetoric and behavior and and even sort of the the value system that animates the policies that we want to work towards. Yeah, I, I, what was most interesting to me was that I was reading work by, or just sort of Twitter commentary by people who um, who were using, like maybe even not using the word rhetoric, but they were certainly using the word persuasion. And right. they had a very clear sense of what they meant by persuasion, which is exactly what you were just describing, sort of rational critical rhetoric. I'm going to persuade you. You're going to sort of counter argue. We're going to go back and forth. And then we're going to arrive at some, you know, relatively sort of middle of the middle of the road position and we'll all move forward like linking arms and be and we'll be happy and um it you know as i as i said previously in this interview like rhetoricians know better and like things never actually work that way um so i was interested in like pushing back on that idea that like one that that if there's no sort of convincing someone that your position is right that there's no rhetoric happening or that there's nothing productive happening. And uh, epideictic is especially an sort of interesting way to think about what's happening in those moments of like, say, Tressie quote tweeting someone who's, who's harassing her because um, what's happening there is a kind of revelation for the rest of us of like what certain people have to experience on a daily basis, both on Twitter and in other, and in other spaces too. So there's a kind of like, revelation of the values of the network revelation of like the values of the community like this is this is what this place looks like for a lot of us and you all should see it and i think that's how i started to understand the quote tweet um and you know as as you had sort of like sent me some ideas about what you wanted to talk about in this interview not to not to pull back the curtain too much no go ahead sure i'm sure everybody i'm sure everybody thought we were we all we sounded smart just off the cuff but (laughs) We're just um, riffing, folks. Yeah. Just doing riffs. <laughs> um, but you had said like that you wanted to talk a little bit about this, so I went back and started thinking a little bit about and, and reading, rereading some things about epideictic 
rhetoric and sort of re-theorizations of it that have happened um, in the last, you know, 10 or 20 years. And, you know, usually my touchstone for this kind of conversation is Jeffrey Walker's work, um, someone I worked with at, at Texas uh, during my PhD. But as I went back and looked around, I actually found this really, I had forgotten about this article by Brooke Rollins in Rhetoric Society Quarterly from 2005, where she's, uh, it's called The Ethics of Epidactic Rhetoric, Addressing the Problem of Presence Through Derrida's Funeral Orations. And I won't, like, I don't, we don't have time to talk about the whole article, but I did find a great sort of passage that she pulls from um, another another uh, sort of critic dealing with um, with epidactic. It's uh, mm. Rosenfeld. And I, I actually want to read this passage because I, I read through it Please. and I was like, wow, this, this is great. Like, this is exactly what I see happening in these quote tweets. But it says, um, the term epidactic comes from epidixis, that is to shine or, th- or, or show forth. Hence, our translation of the word as display and I'll just pause here to say, like, that's how people normally sort of understand epidactic rhetoric as display right. in the sense of to show off is only literally correct. More precisely, the word suggests an exhibiting or making apparent in the sense of showing or highlighting what might otherwise remain unnoticed or invisible. Its root uh, is epidexa, that is to, to exhibit as one would a specimen or paradigm. Epidactic, therefore acts to unshroud men's notable deeds in order to let us gaze at the aura glowing from within. Now, like that sort of end part where it gets maybe a little happier, <laughs> that is the, glo- the sort of glowing from within, perhaps doesn't match what I have in mind. But everything up to that point is really interesting to think about that is like a, a, an exhibiting or making apparent um, right. sort of making visible. And that's, that is what I see happening in these moments of like an ex- exposition. I say at another point in the article that it's like pedagogical material, that it's teaching us, you know, what happens in these spaces. When I say us, I mean largely the people who, who get to kind of experience places like Twitter in a relatively friction-free way. Um, so, right. so epidactic gives you a way to think about there, is per- there should be persuasion happening. Um, all you have to do is like pay attention to what's being said. It's it's not persuasion, like you said, in a sort of deliberative sense or or in a forensic sense. It's in a it's in this diff- much different way, in a way that sort of reveals the values of the place that we are all participating in, and and in some sense implicates all of us in those values. Yeah, I I think that the the last part of that quote about revealing the glow within, right, which is happier. I mean, I th- I think that's. That's manifested in a different, you know, like we could say like subtype of quote tweet. I'm sure we're all familiar with where someone will just say like, read this, you know, yeah, this, or like this, or yeah, like, like the, uh, this. this is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like this, you know, this thread is everything. And what they're really trying to do is, yeah, like you said, teach through display. Um, and I think that's really powerful. I think this gets at the one question I had question I think I was left with when I read your piece. So I agree with everything you say about the quote tweet. I think the thing that I have always struggled with is power dynamics in Twitter spaces, because I think implicit in this idea is that the power dynamic ought to be the quote tweeter is revealing a rhetorical practice or a, a mode of interaction that holds sway with dominant groups and 
dominant writers so that we can think about critiquing that and moving forward and establishing like a different set of values. But I think that because it, it is exhibiting and, and display, I think maybe what some of those critical scholars are getting at is that often what's happening with quote tweets is that people are picking out other people with less power to exhibit and mock. And and I know people who this has personally happened to where someone with more power than them quote tweeted them and it had negative consequences for them, right? And so I wonder how you think about that type of quote tweet and, and to what extent that type of quote tweet actually manages the network, but in a darker way, in a disciplinary way. Yeah, that's a great way to put it at the end there because so so there's no question that like any sort of rhetorical tactic, it can be twisted and, and sort of contorted to different ends. And I've seen exactly what you see that, you know, this is the, the, the one of the people I cite in the article, Kate Starbird, this is her her point about the quote tweet. She's like a, an information scientist and she says, you know, mostly what I see with a quote tweet is like, like a, a, an, an invitation to dogpile. That, that's her term. So, and there's no question we've seen that happen. And especially in certain power dynamics, as you say, like it all depends on who has the power and who has the followers and who has the sort of like group of people who has, has no qualms with saying like, ah, yes, I see, I see what you're doing here. I see this quote tweet and I will, um, I will attack and swarm. And so there's no question that that happens. And you're, you're dead on when you say like, is this maintaining the network in a sort of different sense? Because I think there's a way to think about those sorts of quote tweets as maintaining the network from the sort of opposite direction that is maintaining right. the power dynamics that make it so that only certain people are asked to do the, the, the grunt work of managing the network. And in a sense, those sorts of quote tweets are about main, maybe maintaining it from the direction of like Twitter's interests, the, co- the corporate interests. Cause I always think about Twitter and like the, what Twitter wants is more, is more data and they don't right. really care what that data looks like. So more tweets are better. And, um, so in a sense, like inviting a swarm, inviting a, a group of people to sort of like jump and jump on someone just generates more stuff, uh, more more data points, and invites that sort of extra interaction. And I should also say, you know, Tressie's response to my article was so- that sometimes she does this to do exactly that, to, to invite right. a dog pile. She's, she's not um, shy about that. It's not the only reason, and it's not always the reason, but sometimes it is. Sometimes that is exactly what she's trying to do. And she has, in some certain situations, she does have power. She has a lot of followers. Um, so there's no question that that's happening. But I do think there's a way to think about the sort of maintenance work of the sort of more nefarious quote tweet. And, and it's just that it's maintaining the network in a different kind of way. And I think what that really, what this all sort of points to is is the conclusion of a lot of the work I've been doing in the last few years with... Um, a couple of co-author publications with students that have come out that has essentially got gotten us thinking that we're all being asked to maintain these networks for these companies. That that is right. essentially the the bottom line here. Whether uh, no matter who we are, no matter how much power we have, they have decided that they're not going to invest very much, if any, money in community moderation. And so it's up to us. And um, 
you know, we're all sort of out here trying to figure out what that means. Uh, on Twitter, it means a certain thing. On places like Discord or other platforms, it, it's it's just as hard or harder as sort of coordinated attacks happen. But the bottom line is like no one is forcing these these software companies to think carefully about content moderation, about community moderation. They they would see that as an extra cost. Um, as, right. and that worked against their bottom line. They'd have to pay people to do that work, and they're not going to do it. So we all have to do it, and and that means that we're all sort of sometimes fighting against each other, as we are all sort of tasked with managing the network for you know multi-billion-dollar corporations. Yeah, and I think that points to a you know a sense in which like this idea of ethical programs is a really powerful metaphor. It's not. It's it's not just about you know, literal programming and software and um, digital platforms, but that, you know, we are shaped by and shaping ethical programs in a broader sense, in a collective sense, and that rhetorical agency is, as Carlin Course Campbell said, protean, promiscuous, and unpredictable, and that we will often find ourselves maintaining systems that at the same time are, are disciplining us. Yeah, I, that's great. I mean, it, I, I love that quote. Jim, I, I, you know, anything else to add, anything to, to conclude with, uh, that's, that's pretty much all I have, but I, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. No, we, we only talked briefly about baseball, but maybe that's for a different <laughs> podcast, but yeah, when you start your baseball podcast, I'd like to be the, uh, the, the first guest. You can be the narrative guy and I'll be the stats guy and we'll, right, we'll that... do like a, you know, a platonic. Yeah, we can dialogue. fight each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, Jim Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Reverb. Anything you want to plug before we go? People should read the A Modern article and the A Modern. Um, that whole yeah, that whole special issue is really uh, incredible. It's around the the topic of tech, cultural techniques. Um, it, it in some sense emerged a little bit out of uh, a symposium we host at the um, Digital Studies Center every year uh, called the uh, Rutgers Camden Archive of Digital Ephemera Arcade where we invite people to come in and sort of tinker with uh, hand, do hands-on work with digital tools. So that special issue came out of a, a an arcade symposium that was based around the, the topic of technique. Now, all the people in the, in the issue were not at arcade, but that was where the kind of idea emerged. And the editor is Grant Wythoff, who's brilliant and put together an amazing issue. So I would recommend people people check that out. And this year's arcade had to be canceled as everything had to be canceled, but um, it was supposed to be about rep- the, the theme of repair and we're hoping to just recreate it um, next spring. So um, uh, that keep an eye out for any sort of arcade-type uh, uh, developments. Who knows how budgets will change and whether that will change arcade, but we hope not. Awesome. Jim, I just hope you find some great uh, dwelling places uh, You know, through all of this chaos, and I hope you stay safe, man. It was really cool to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock, with editorial assistance from Ben Williams and Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producers are Alex and Ben, as well as Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.